Hey guys, and welcome to the Because Maybe podcast, the podcast that takes a look at all things 90s and answers some of the most important questions of the decade. Because maybe conspiracies are dumb. I'm your host, John Connolly. Thank you for whoever you are, wherever you are, for taking the time out of your day to listen to this podcast. We have a good show for you this week, too. We look at one of the most iconic TV performances in MTV music history, and we review Anima of the State, one of the more subtly introspective albums of the 90s. If you don't believe me, keep on listening. Guys, if you are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, check out Because Maybe Pod. We have some extra content going on in there, just kind of news and so on and so forth. The usual thing you find on the social media pages. Um, I know the last couple of weeks we've been a little bit lagging. Um, just stuff's been super, super busy um, with my, uh, you know, my 8 to 5. That's just been... Uh, whew, it's the Christmas period, you know. I'm, I work in marketing, and um, the Christmas period is perhaps our busiest time of year, but there's no perhaps about it, it is our busiest time of year. Um, that's why we've kind of got it behind with the, um, with, with the social media pages, but you know what, we are looking to, you know, push forward, uh, for the rest of the year. Same thing goes with the blog, because maybe podcast.wordpress.com, that's where you'll find kind of teasers, and, you know, for those guys who don't want to listen to the podcast, but want to read some stuff, you know, we, we go on there, and of course we have our YouTube channel, which has some extra content, bonus material, uh, podcast samples, so you can listen to us on the go, and so on and so forth. Uh, we are on iTunes, we are on Podbean, if you guys are on those services, you know, go ahead and sign up and, and subscribe to us, we are looking to increase the number of subscribers, and, you know, just so it automatically downloads to your preferred podcast app, as opposed to, you know, me having to go, hey, look, we did a podcast, hey, look, we did a podcast. You know, I want, I want to do less of that and more content, you know, if that makes sense. Um, this is nearly the end of our first season, though. Um, I said at the very, very first episode that I wanted to do this more as a seasonal thing. Uh, maybe do between 12 and 15 episodes, then take a couple of weeks off to kind of restock the shelves in terms of research and in terms of ideas and so on and so forth. Uh, I've already planned season two as best that I can, however... You know, we are looking to improve, and we are looking to uh, new ideas. I mean, I know the format right now is I give it a little speech at the beginning, we go into our segment, uh, we have a little skit, and then we go out. Um, if there's a way to change all that, you know, let us know. We'll go ahead and, and take care of it. Uh, I might start doing 90s trivia at the beginning of the episode. I know I haven't done that in a while, but um, I'm just finding a hard time to spend the time researching that at the moment. Again, Christmas time, the holiday time, you know, is so, so busy for me, and... The fact that I'm able to get this podcast out is a miracle in itself. So, um, we did some good feedback uh, last week. Um, we did have an upturn in listens. That was very, very important. I know we were down for a couple of weeks, and that kind of got to me a little bit. Because uh, I was looking to, you know, figure out, well, you know, if I'm not getting the people listening to it that I want to get listening to it, you know, what what do I do? How do I do it? And people who know me know that um, I have a hard time pushing things forward, but um, I'm glad we've got an upturn, I think I've got an idea now on, on how to structure seasons, episodes, and so on and so forth a little bit better, and I'm hoping that next season will be far better than what we had this season, but uh, again, I'm proud of the season, I'm proud of everything that we've done, you know, we've uh, we've launched a campaign for, for a charity, we've, um, you know, exposed some of my own personal demons, uh, we've looked at some really, really important things that happened during my childhood, my young adulthood, you know, whatever you want to call it, and so on and so forth, and I'm really, really happy with everything that we've done, but now next season, we're going to jump to the next level, and, you know, just, just push that further, push the envelope a little bit further, not be controversial, but, you know, more and more in-depth in what we're looking at, so that's one of the things that I'm looking for. I also had a little bit of feedback on the, the topic that I spoke about at the end of last week's episode, you know, it was a very, very hard thing to listen to, I'm not going to lie, it was a very, very hard thing to say, but I stand by every single word that I said. 
Um, if you have a problem with that, if anybody has a problem with that, please email me uh, because maybe podcast at gmail.com and I will quite rightly listen to what you say because you know that that's how you debate in society these days. That's one of the things we, we haven't done in a long, long time. We don't listen to the opposite side of the argument. No matter how outlandish, no matter how stupid, and no matter how we think that the other side of the argument is wrong, we don't listen to that side of the argument so that we don't educate people. We just immediately write people off as loonies, bigots, racists, sexists, snowflakes, whatever you want to call it. And, and I think that's wrong. I think every point of view needs to be listened to. And if a point of view is very, very outlandish and very, very wrong, then that person needs to be educated, not ostracized. So that's just my opinion. I don't care what you think. That's that's basically how it is. So with all that in mind, we're going to go ahead and start looking at uh, Blink-182, Anima of the State. And yeah, it was a really, really good time recording this. I had a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I want you to keep an open mind when you listen to this, because I know a lot of people consider this kind of music childish and stuff like that, but I, I want you to listen to it and understand why I think the way that it is. And I think I've, I make some good points. I think Greg makes some good points. And, uh... It's not as cut and dry as it seems on the surface. It's one of these things that's very, very shallow on the surface, but when you dig into it, it actually is a lot deeper. So, with that in mind, Blink-182, Animal of the State. Review Corner, the Music Lounge. Okay, this week on Review Corner, we take a look at one of the pop- most popular albums of the tail end of the 90s. This is like squeezes in with the last couple of months. Uh, it was a worldwide smash. It appeared in many movies. We are talking about Blink-182's Animal of the State. And I am joined once again by musical connoisseur and the best person I can possibly think of to talk with me about this, Mr. Greg Gregory. Greg, how are you, man? Hey, what's up? Good to be here. Well, we, the last couple of times we spoke, we've moved into, uh, we spoke about uh, movies, we spoke about Wayne's World, and we spoke about Groundhog Day, but today we're going more into what both of us find one of our more passions in life, we're going to music. And both of us being musicians, you highly professional, me somewhat amateur, you know, we, we find love in music, and this is one of the albums that when I first broached the broadcast, I said this was probably the most 90s album out there. Yeah, yeah it's up there. Uh, also, this is... Uh we do uh, several songs of this album in the holodex as well. So sweet, sweet. Um, this album, I don't know where to begin with this one. I mean, we can go look at the the, the technical info we want to, but this album was more emotional, and I don't mean like you know highs and lows and crying, but um, more along the lines of it wasn't a technical album, so to speak. It was simply, you know, three three chords. Uh, it was described as nursery rhymes on steroids. Yeah, it, it had a, it had a certain pop sensibility to it, even though remaining uh, true to its punk roots. It uh, it it has the full array of emotion. I mean, you have a little bit of everything. You've got happiness, anger, frustration. You know, there's a lot of um, relatable topics that they talk about that would fit right in the demographic for the average listener for this album. So yeah, it's definitely definitely a very important album in a lot of ways. And one of one of the things about it was, I mean, it, it, it came in a tumultuous time for the band. Let's go through real quick. This was released in uh, June of 1999. It reached uh, number nine in the Billboard charts and number 15 in the UK album charts, their first uh, chart in, in the UK. Sold 15 million copies worldwide, which for the for the type of band and the top uh, at the time, that's a huge amount. Of, that's a huge number. I mean, you had Green Day and the Offspring who were kind of leading that charge, but everybody else was kind of, you know... 
tailing behind it, so to speak. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the movement that was happening in the genre was primarily underground. You had a few a few acts that were, uh, as you mentioned, uh, like Green Day and uh, Bad Religion, a few other ones. But this one definitely redefined the genre. It was produced by Jerry Finn. Now, for those of you who don't know, Jerry Finn produced uh, Dookie by Green Day. And he also produced some parts, uh, some albums by the Goo Goo Dolls as well. So he was very, very entrenched in that, that culture, so to speak, that underground uh, sub-punk culture, I guess you could say. Um, it was released on the MCA label, and it is, it, it's, it's in essence, it's just basically uh, pop-punk for lack of a better term. Oh, I, I mean, yeah, quintessentially 100% pop-punk. I mean, it's not true punk because it's it's highly polished and lyrically it's very, very connectable and it's not really anti-establishment, so to speak. No, no. I, I mean, that that would be more like your uh, Dead Kennedys, um, uh, the Dead Milkmen, uh, that sort of thing. But um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the things about this as well... It kind of again, it was a tumultuous time for the band. Uh, Dude Ranch should be a national hit, not necessarily worldwide, but the album was definitely you know pe- people knew who these guys were going into this album, which is again was kind of weird at the time because I mean 1997 was a very very odd year for music, and it, it seemed like at least overseas that the American music scene was changing from more. You know, we went from uh, more rock and pop acts to more R&B and rap acts. I mean, you had you had the rise of, of rap stars and you had the rise of R&B. And then all of a sudden, boom, this 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 little pop punk album comes in and uh, it allowed them to join the Warped Tour. Now, I don't know much about the Warped Tour. Do you know anything about the Warped Tour? Yeah, I've been uh, I've been to three or four installments of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, there's a lot of uh, mainstream acts. But also at this time, um, you, like in '97 when they joined, there they had a strong support for burgeoning, up-and-coming bands, underground bands, and there's a lot of bands that have gotten um, you know some pretty awesome momentum from festivals like that. And it was more like a lot of the music genres kind of parallel a movement, so to speak. Which, you know, in, in all music things. And it's safe to say that a lot of this stuff was paralleling, like, the skater movement that was, again, becoming more and more mainstream. You had yeah. the likes of Tony Hawk, you know, becoming mainstream. Or is it Tony Hawk's? Tony there's, Hawk. There's there's two yeah. of them. And I'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Um, but, um, I mean, even there were even skate, skating stars becoming movie stars, like, say, Jason Lee, for example. You know, I mean, he, he was one of the, the, the I don't know where he came from but he was like a huge skating guy before he became a movie yeah star. he was a he was a professional skater um he actually became friends with uh kevin smith yeah got one of his first big breaks in dogma uh i think he'd done some acting before that uh i just don't think it was anything that substantial and to date most people don't even know him as a skater most people know him as jason lee the actor yeah which is interesting it's 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 really really weird like that. I mean, you know, it, out of all the things, I mean, I'm going to be talking about next season how musicians became uh, movie stars, but you know, he'd be considered, I guess, a celebrity ath- an actor athlete in the same way like um, well, Jay Simpson was, or you know, obviously he didn't kill anyone. Um, 
But uh, the tumultuous time for Blink-182 was based around their drummer at the time, Scott Rayner. Uh, he was having real, real bad alcohol problems. Just horrible, horrible uh, alcohol problems. And on the Warp Tour, he was replaced by Travis Barker. And that kind of... What people don't realize is, obviously, Travis Barker, while he toured with them, he wasn't the actual drummer. He was just... He was the stand-in, you know? And then after... And I think this is this is really bad. I, I, you know, this is very, very backstabbing, I guess you'd say, the best way to do it. They said, go to rehab, or you're getting fired. And then they fired him when he was in rehab. <laughs> well, I mean, I've I've listened faithfully to every Blink-182 album, including their first uh, album, Dude Ranch. Yeah. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt that while Scott Rayner is a proficient drummer travis barker is just on a whole nother level oh yeah this, so this. i kind of don't blame them because that's that that was like finding a you know uh, a, a piece of gold at, yeah. like in the middle of a trash can or something i mean it was just totally un, you know can't I mean, let that go yeah i don't mean music musically it made sense i mean I, I i'll say right now i would say on this podcast travis barker is the greatest living drummer right now i don't care what anybody says you can use who throw me give me a drumming name and I will tell you why Travis Barker is better. I, I think uh, I think you could argue that for the genre. I think there's some other drummers alive that are just as good. But it's like he he had a multiple drumming style though. It wasn't just he wasn't just a rock drummer. I mean, he came from a skull group for a start. Yeah, uh, the Aquabats. The Aquabats. I can remember the name. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, he was only with them for one album, and I can't remember the name of it. But uh, the Fury of the Aquabats. That that is a great album. If you get a chance to listen to it, definitely listen to it. It's just like I said. I think because of his range of musical styles, it's why I would say say that. I mean, Phil Collins. Look, Phil Collins, the musician, gets a lot of bad press. However, he's a fantastic drummer. I don't think any anybody who's seen Phil Phil Collins behind a drum kit can you know can say that he's a bad drummer. But his problem is the music he makes is so dull uh <laughs> devoid of any emotion and produced to the nth degree but at the same time you put him behind a kit and he's really really good but he only knows how to play one style and that's that rock progressive rock whereas travis barker would come in with rock jazz funk hip-hop yeah so on and so and forth. he's proven that self with uh side projects like the transplants yep he's done studio drumming um he it's also interesting too his background as a drummer he was a um a marching marching band yep. drummer and um, which is interesting to me because um, I actually had a friend who uh, was in Drum Corps International, which is basically like a 18, 18 to twenty one handpicked best of the best drum and bugle corps. Um, one of the most phenomenal drummers I've ever seen in my life. However, you put him on a, a drum kit, guys totally lost. So the fact that Travis could translate that into a drum kit is just phenomenal i've seen a lot of people struggle with that and i mean I've, I've i've seen that too not just with uh drum kids but i mean like um a couple of years ago i went to watch my daughter sing with an orchestra and they had the dudes with the double bass and they had an electric bass a proper bass guitar and the guy picked it up and started playing and he looked like he you know he was holding it a little bit too far out in front and looked like he didn't have a clue what he was doing and I was like, "Why well, just pick it with a double bass, dude? It'd be the same, similar sound." Right. Um, but as I mentioned, Jerry Finn produced the album, produced uh, Dookie with the Goo Goo Dolls. Talking of how good Travis Barker was, the urban legend is that all the drumming that you hear on this album took him eight hours to complete in one session. 
And that, that's a, what, an 11, 12-track album? 12-track album, and it took the rest of the album three to four months to be produced. He took eight hours to do his bit. Yeah, when I, whenever you go into the studio, um, typically in major label situations like that, what they'll do is they'll have the whole band cut everything live, and then they'll basically just isolate, isolate the drum part, and then everyone else will go back in and add their parts to it. So... Um, yeah, they really caught the um, the intensity of his playing, and uh, like the the guy just never makes a mistake. I mean, he's just no. absolutely flawless. No, he doesn't. I mean, like I said, the the, the fact the, the fact that you know, the fact that I'm praising his drumming style right now. I mean, it kind of his drumming style influenced the overall sound of the band. I mean, like when, I'm not trying to take away from from Mark Hopes and Tom DeLonge and try and make this the Travis Barker album, but Blink One Eighty Two were standard full full. 120, 140 beats per minute band straight away through. And then when Travis Barker came, he kind of, he would drum the verse this style and then change Tom signature and drumming signature for the, the bridge and the chorus and so on and kind of influence the future sound of the band. And he had, yeah, he had really, really tasteful fills. Yes. Very musical playing. Uh, doesn't, doesn't overplay, but at the same time, um, Let's his lets his chops breathe a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah man, he's he's fantastic. Uh, the the sound of the album, not not necessarily the album, but the sound of the album was inspired by a No Effects album, uh, Punk in Drublick. Yes. Now I've never listened to that album. I'm I'm presuming you have, and it's an assumption. But uh, yeah, no, that's a that's a uh, a big part of the the '90s punk scene right there, big time. And see, again, no effects was only in the underground skating guys who I went to college with. It was really, really weird, too, because I, I learned a lot about the things, but a lot about certain bands, and I never actually listened to much of the songs, but they were always there. Um, Finn is credited making the band take more takes. Because they wanted a polished sound, he, he basically said, that wasn't good enough, try again. That wasn't good enough, try again. That wasn't good enough, try again. And that's why it took four months to do the bass and the guitars on top of everything. But I think you can't hear any mistakes, and it's very, very tight yeah, because th of that. There's a lot of production values on it. If you listen to it really carefully, there's a lot of uh, vocal overdubs, yes. uh, guitar overdubs, and they've got um, some extra instruments in there as well um, that, that we'll get to here in a minute. Yep. So, I mean, this album is a four-person album with a producer. Which, again, even with established bands, just having four guys or four gals record an album seems a little weird. But um, no, it's just uh, Mark Hoppus, who is bass guitar, vocals, Tom DeLong on guitar and vocals, Travis Barker on drums and anything he could, that could make a noise to be percussion. And uh, Roger Manning Jr., I don't know who that guy is, but he plays uh, piano parts, uh, I think predominantly in Adam's song. I think that's the, the, the one with, the, with a lot of piano into it. And obviously produced by uh, Jerry Finn. So I mean, so far, so far before we, you know, we we we've looked at any of the songs. It's got like a real, real heavyweight feel to it. It's like they weren't playing. They realized that uh, Dude Ranch was the foundation of something. They needed to jump off and kind of you know, again, four months, eight hours of drumming, and tight for for the type of album that it was. That was you know. So let's look at this stuff track by track. I mean, I think there's about 14 tracks on the album, 13 or 14. I want to start with Dumpweed. And right away, you can tell there's a difference in the style of music that they're going to do. That, that real, real hard drum beat, and then it just punches guitar and bass in there. 
Uh, it was written by Tom DeLonge, and it's basically a song about sexual frustration and how, in his young mind at the time, he felt that he felt that uh, you know he 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 couldn't get any girls. And what I mean by that is the song is a callow complaint about girls not doing exactly what you wish they would. So basically, he's mourning about the friend zone uh, right. <laughs> from a long time ago. Uh, the hook of the song is a lyric that that says, uh, "I need a girl that I can train." And just repeated and repeated. And digging into it, it's got a very, very weird meaning behind it. Uh, he's basically saying that girls are so much smarter than guys, and they can see the future as well as forget the past. So that basically leaves dogs as the only thing that men are smarter than. So what he's looking for, basically, is a woman with an intelligence of a dog will do what she's told. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, but that's, that's sort of a overriding theme throughout the album in yeah. a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of these songs are about relationships, breakups... Yeah sexual frustration a lot of them it seems like they're aimed more towards late teenage males as well yeah I mean because again you and I were what late teens when we started mid to late teens when this album came out yeah I was about 16 yeah so I mean a lot a lot of people took to it because of these kind of themes um and one of the things one of the things as well he's not being which we'll get to when we get to the the end discussion these a lot of these things are not supposed to be taken seriously so him saying, I need a girl that I can train, and she needs to do what she's told, he, he's not being serious when he's saying that, but he's making the point of how people think right. when it comes to that. You know, it's like na- nowadays, hey, I, you know, I, I, I took you to the movies. You must now have sex with me. You know, And this right. is, I guess, the, the, the anthem of the, fr- the friend zone. Yeah. Um, we then leave to Don't Leave Me, which is written by Mark Halpas, and... It's a breakup song, basically. Uh, it's the end of a relationship, but looking at it in kind of an ironic way. And you'll find a lot of that in Mark Hoppus's songs is that a lot of his songs talk about breakup and loneliness, whereas uh, Tom DeLonge's songs talk about... Trying to get laid. Trying to get laid and being high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but um, sweeping guitars in this song, you know, an, an essence of you don't get in, in traditional punk is the overproduction on the guitars that kind of do that... that middle to end of the song it just come it just comes through really 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 well um aliens exist talk about a song to smoke weed too uh <laughs> yeah i love the uh the opening uh drum part of that too yes yeah um uh, i think i can't remember if it was dump weed or aliens exist but i used to go to college with this guy who was a really good drummer and uh he used to warm up for like 20 minutes a day trying to master that that's so that that tells you anything how great Barker is again. It's getting people uh, to 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 believe it. Sounds about UFOs and conspiracy theories. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, uh, Tom DeLong is actually doing that sort of thing full time now. He's conspiracy nut. Yeah, he sort of fancies it. Uh, I don't I don't want to give away stuff in the future. Like, I haven't looked all all the way through the notes, but. Uh, yeah, uh, Delonge's uh, obsession with um, aliens and stuff affects his tenure in the band later on. Yeah, and that's 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 one of the, that's one of the sad things that I've noticed. I mean, I, uh, conspiracies are good and everything like that, but to dedicate your life to them just seems a little. Well, I mean, if you're if you're a rich musician and you got you can get away with money anything. to burn, I mean, you know the guy's a multimillionaire, so. Oh yeah, definitely. And th- this album probably was the one that made him most money. He's still making money off this album today. <laughs> Considering the rest of the album, could that be considered throwaway? 
it's a it's a good song, but I mean, it just it's just like to me, it seems like it fills up Tom between "Don't Leave Me" and "Going Away to College." I don't agree with that, man. Honestly, um, uh, to me, this is one of those albums that listens like a book reads. You know, I I, I really feel like um, each track adds its own piece of the puzzle. So, um, you know, I I particularly enjoy every track on this album, but that's that, that's definitely one of my favorites. Sweet. Yeah, it's it's like I said, it's a it's a good song. I just it, to me, it didn't feel as deep as as much of the other stuff. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, I've I've definitely have a deeper fancy for. Some of the other ones, like uh, going away to college, yes. I've got a lot, a lot of stuff personally connected to that. With a uh, um, that, that actually came out. This album came out the year that I moved to Louisiana from Arizona, and um, I had a very serious girlfriend at the time, who I had to break up with because I was leaving the state, and we knew why we will both want to be sixteen. You know, just getting our licenses and be in a long distance relationship i mean that just it didn't make sense so i remember being at her house or hanging out with her basically just crying in each other's arms listening to the song over and over again so and, it, yeah. it, and, and i like i mean i like going away to college as well you know it's it's again produced uh produced more than than your average punk song um it was written ironically on valentine's day while watching can't hardly wait uh that's 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 a heck of a movie to set right enough songs to. Um I mean, as you said, you know, it, it it how much it sucks when people are in love in high school and are forced to be separated. I mean, you've just you know, you've you've testified to that. Yeah, I mean, we weren't it wasn't a call it wasn't under the exact same circumstances, but I mean it was very similar. Yeah. I mean, I was moving three states away from from a from a a, a woman that I fancied very, 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 very much. So it was hard. One of the, I mean, you know, again, you hit the nail right on the head. This is, this, this, I mean, this was written pre-internet days. So there was no text messages. There was, it was basically letters and phone calls for, for something, you know, for something like Long, that. Yeah. And ironically, one of the uh, eight hours that Travis Barker took to record the album was going into this, this song. They had to recut it for some reason. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I love this. I think this is possibly my second favorite song on the album. And again, because of the subject matter. Um, Again, as we will get, we will get to the, po- the the main point that I'm trying to make here. But again, it's on the surface, it just seems childish and Blink One Eighty Two y. But then when you look into the song itself, it's it's a lot more, it's a lot deeper. Basically, yeah, it is. And you'll find that with every single track on this album, once you know the story behind it, it becomes a lot more deeper, even if it's simplistic in its lyrics and arrangement. A bouquet of clumsy words. Exactly. It's exactly. one of my favorite lines from the whole album. Uh, what's my age again? This is this is this is what started it. This is what started the uh, the the roller coaster for them. Uh, Mark Harpus wrote it. It was written as a joke called Peter Pan Syndrome, and it basically talks about being a twenty year old acting like a teenager. And really, it it, it is. <laughs> you know, it's. It... And that's you know it's fairly accurate too. I I was actually lucky enough to see. Blink-182 in 1999, 98, somewhere around there. Yeah. And, um, yeah, man, those guys, they're, they're at least the original lineup. Well, original lineup sans Rainer yeah. with Barker. Classic lineup. 
yeah, they were they were absolute cut ups. Um, Mark and Tom have like a really unique stage chemistry. Um, if if you ever have a chance, they have a live album called the Mark, Tom, and Travis Show. Yes, it's highly explicit and it's very sexually suggestive, but it's hilarious. Yeah, it, it, it's it's and not only that too, the musical portions of it are great. I mean, the, the in betweens of the songs, you know, they, they have great chemistry. You know, blah 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 blah. Uh, like the the country song, the hillbilly side. I think where they start playing, doom, 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 doom. Yeah, and just the crowd gets into it, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're into another track, and it's high energy, and you know, the the the, the crowd are loving it. Um, the opening bass line sounds like something from the Pixies, from definitely uh, from Debasa. That's what that's what my notes say right here. I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm I'm not a big Pixies guy. I'll be completely honest. Yeah, I'm, I'm not 100 familiar with that, but yeah, I mean. It had a very quintessential punk sound, and the Pixies definitely fall into that punk grunge sort of yeah. category. Now, let me ask you a question as a musician. This song was written as a joke, childish, um, in some cases vulgar. Not in my case. I, 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 you know, it doesn't bother me. But the record label, I mean, as soon as the record label executives heard this, they had to excuse themselves with a napkin. You know, um, they just... They just wow! This is this is it. This is what we want to start with. Is that a good is is that a good idea? Getting the 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 suits involved with the artistic process in terms of getting something out the door. Um, you know that's it's tough, man. Because you know, in 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 some ways, you don't want to be a sellout. You want to be stay true to what you're doing. But I mean, you're you're recording an album with MCA, so there's going to be some. Suitage involved. Yeah, it's, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's you know, when you write your own material, uh, especially when you spend a lot of time crafting it and getting it just exactly so, um, just like any any other form of art, where whether you paint or sculpt, a lot of times if you look at it too long, you start to think of it differently. Yeah. So having an outsider's perspective especially someone that's connected in the business that understands the business it can be quite valuable actually it gives a fresh pair of eyes on it because i i know you know at, when i've written songs i've overthought it and just just absolutely chopped it to death and made it too campy added all this extra stuff in it that didn't even need you know so kept fixing it until it was broke yeah i mean it, there's just there's just a certain balance to it to get it to where um you know, you're staying true to Blink-182, but at the same time, you're putting out a product that's going to be relatable and appealing to a lot of people. And see, that's that's one of my things, too. A lot of the, lot of the music I listen to came from more independent labels. So where, where, where the ethos was, the artist is always right. And that's led to some great albums, and that's led to some albums where you look at it and go, I'll listen to it and go, oh, well... Maybe a suit would have been good there, but um, especially for the genre of music, you know, just trying to make, trying to see how how well the suits would 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 blend into it. Um, we go back to Tom DeLonge, and we go back to the friend zone and Dysentery Gary. Um, interestingly enough, Travis Barker Latin style drums. That's that's uh, I don't say a departure, but when you uh, again, as we spoke about earlier, his multiple genre style of drumming kind of again help this kind of track go through yeah it does a little like rim click sort of group. yeah 
Yeah, yeah. M- more funky than, than Rocky, so to speak. Yeah, it's like the pre-chorus, I think it is. I think so, too. Um, again, I originally, I originally last listened to this album when I was first putting this podcast together, you know, back in, was it March, April? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> it was a while ago. It was a while ago. So, yeah, it's a while. So, every time, I'm going to do this, I'm to, and then I forget to do it. So, um, again, it's 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 friends only. Now, the, the, look, there, there are people out there who say the friend zone exists. There are people out there who say the friend zone doesn't exist. There are two kinds of friend zones. There's the one where the guy says, hey, how are you? Let me impregnate you. You know, which is which is what most people think it is. And then there's the one where, you know, the guy develops feelings and they're not reciprocated. This was written about the first kind, which is, hey, I like you. Please bear my seed. <laughs> you know, and basically a childish way of how how folks deal with it you know how how you deal with rejection of a crush well, and i mean the, especially from the um the standpoint that they're writing all the stuff at i mean you're mid to early t- you know you're mid to late teens and early 20s is a very awkward time oh definitely especially sexually because you have all these new hormones that are racing through your body and you don't really understand what what they mean and how to express them well and not only that but to compartmentalize logic with the animal instinct yes that's to me that was the toughest thing for me because you know if i could go back in time i probably would have done things a lot differently than i had back then i don't regret any of it but if i knew what i knew now yeah then things would be very very different and that's what a lot of people say to people act their most stupid between the ages of like fifteen and twenty one. That's there's a reason they call it so and so in your wild oats. Yep. You know, get get it all out of the way. Get it all out of the way. So you can turn thirty and grab have, a desk job and just rot away. And have a mortgage and kids and Yeah. But I still get to, I guess still get to play in a band, so oh, there you go. I get to cling to that part of my childhood. <laughs> I'm, I might start that next year. I don't know, but uh, I got I got to learn how to sing first. Uh, <laughs> we move on to one of the big hits on the album, Adam's Song. Um, yeah, this is this one is. Uh, yeah, this one. This is a this is a tough tune it, with the, all the implications surrounding it, and sort of the mood and the demeanor of it. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, it's it's def- it's a definite come down for the rest of the album. Um, yeah, it's kind of the ballad, in a way. It is not written about suicide a lot of people assume that it's a pro-suicide song it is not it's actually written about loneliness um Mark, they just finished the warp tour and they all went home and travis went to his girlfriend tom went to his girlfriend and he was just basically sitting at the baggage carousel by himself you know it looked like um a scene in one of the monty python movies where the woman gives birth to the baby and like the room is full of people, and then as soon as she has the kid, everybody just leaves, and she's just there by herself, going, "Hello, hello." That's kind of kind of how he felt. Um, it is a serious song. It is a mid to low tempo song compared to the rest of the album. Um, that drum part, though, I mean, oh. I just um, like uh, in the verses, the little that little run, like Travis has this pattern that he plays like all over the kit. I'm just trying to imagine what that song would sound like if Rainer was still man, and he was just like, boot, tat, boot, boot, tat, boot, tat. It would not have the same no. feel at all. The drums are kind of ominous in a way. They sort of give it that dark feel. I mean, and, and I've, I've heard bands do something like that to get their drummer to play what they want to play. They, they'll drum machine it, and then the drummer will get offended and 
drum the drum machine bits. It's like, well, that's the only, you know, that's the only way we can lead you to there is to program it first. Yeah. Um, callbacks to Come As You Are by Nirvana. Um, I took my time. I hurried up. The choice was mine. It was never enough. Callback to um, Take Your Time, Hurry Up, Choice Is Yours, Don't Be Late. I think yeah. is the is the original lyrics. I, I might be I might not be hundred percent correct, but I'm I'm pulling off the top. Of my I head. think actually the uh, Blink One Two was took my time, hurried up, choice was mine. I didn't think enough. I didn't think enough. I, if I'm I'm pretty sure on that, but yeah that 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 was one of the first things that popped out to me being a, being a huge Nirvana fan, huge Kurt Cobain fan. Yeah, uh, it's definitely cool when you you. Uh, have other people that hear that and then don't know its significance and then yeah. you tell them like oh wow come really as you are. Listen, listen to come as you are it'll, it'll cause a kickback um, but the reason it's got a reputation as being a, a suicide song is not long after the album had been released uh, a 17 year old teenager uh, who attended Columbine High School and had lost his friends in, in the massacre um, hung himself and he played the song like you put the CD in hit repeat and then tragically took his own life um and a lot of people thought well you know it's because he was encouraged by the song he was encouraged by the song he's encouraged by the song no it, again as we've pointed out it's about loneliness not suicide i mean i can understand people would 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 take it like that when you listen to some of the lyrics but uh both members of the band uh mark harper said i was actually out shopping and management called me and told me the story of what happened and i was like but it's an anti-suicide song it felt awful. I mean, these things that the kid had to go through his life were very saddening. And then to end it the way it was was really depressing. But Adam's song, the heart of the song, is about having hard times in your life, being depressed, and going through a difficult period, but then finding the strength to go on and finding a better place at the other side of that. And I agree with that statement completely. I mean, the song is it's very down, but the chorus is... At least the arrangement of the chorus is very, very uplifting. Maybe yeah. the lyrics might not be, but the, definitely the arrangement. Yeah, I, I think the one, the, the one specific lyric that could point to um, it possibly being about suicide or how someone could misconstrue it as that is, uh, "You'll be sorry when I'm gone." Yes. To me, that was, or uh, "You'll never step foot in my room again." You close it off and board it up. And I think that was more, I mean, even though it was released a little bit later, that was, um, it was, I think it's the pre-shadow to, well, fine, I'll build my own Lunar Lander with Blackjack and hookers, you know, right. <laughs> that's what, you'd be sorry when I'm gone, because I'll have my own way of doing it. I'll show you. Yeah. yeah. And it could have been taken like that. Uh, Tom DeLong said, it affected us really strongly because that song was a song of hope. When we were writing it, we knew specifically that we did not want kids to think it was something that we thought was cool or rad. We didn't endorse it in any kind of way, talking about suicide. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, it it's kind of a point of contention for me when people blame uh, recording artists and musicians and stuff for other people's actions. Definitely. Unless the, unless the song is called Go Kill Yourself, You Loser... And that's the whole song being played over and over again. Even then, no one's made them do that. So, no. I mean, I think it was the same thing with the Nirvana track. I hit myself and I won't die. You know, it just just pe- yeah. people people assumed, as I mentioned in the Britpop episode, people assumed that it was a depression thing or a suicide thing when it was actually a play on words from their 
recording process. Yeah, um, I don't. Did we did we talk about this already? We didn't talk about it, but I know I, I mentioned I mentioned it briefly in the Britpop mm. episode. Yeah, they they were. Uh, it's when they were recording the In Utero album. They um, there was some frustration because they actually ended up switching producers halfway through, or engineers halfway through. It was one or the other, and um, he kept making them re- redo, redo, redo everything. And uh, so there was this inside joke between the band saying, "Hey, uh, how you doing today? Oh, I hate myself and want to die." So it was it was more like an inside joke, but with, with the with Cobain's, um, you know, supposed suicide, possible murder, depending on what side of the fence you're on, it takes a whole different connotation. Yeah. Anyways, you're done chasing that rabbit. But uh, we got to something a little bit happier now. Um, you know, other ones to be all doom and gloom. Again, it is a happy album, except for this one. And even then, it's not a sad song. It's just a it's it's a introspective song. At least you definitely think about it. Uh, we got to all the small things, which was the worldwide hit. Yeah, I that's mean, the biggest biggest hit off the album, and one of the most popular songs we play in the holodecks by far. Oh, definitely. It's it's also one. Of, I mean, it's also one of the biggest songs of the nineties. I mean, it it just took the world by storm. This is where I, this song is what I was introduced to Blink One Eighty Two by. Yeah, it's 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 sing along mecca. Um, it was specifically written to be a pop single. It was definitely it was written to be a single, and it was definitely written to be the most poppy thing that they could possibly have done in terms of you know what they what they wanted to do. Uh, homage to the Ramones in this song, which I find which I find funny because the Ramones were the most anti suit band that they portrayed themselves to be, and yet you know here, here we are doing a suit album. Na 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 na. na. <laughs> um, in three part harmony at that. Yeah, I mean that's that's very simple song too. That's 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 one thing I like. About C G and F and then C F and G. Yeah, just yeah three chord rock. You know, it works though. Wait, wait till they discover a minor chord. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and once again it, that that song would have sounded very bland and uneventful if it weren't for Travis Barker. His drumming just put it right over the top. He made a lot of this album. He he did again. It's not it's not necessarily the Travis show, but he deserves a lot more credit than than people realize. Yeah, he's he's definitely driving the bus in the band. But while the, the lyrics of this song sounded like nonsensical words to rhyme and everything like that, there is some autobiographical. Um, Tom DeLonge's girlfriend, for example, bought him a stack of roses and left them next to his staircase in the new house that they just bought. Hence the phrase, she left me roses by the stairs, surprise, let me know she cares. That sounds throwaway when you just listen to it without hearing the backstory. But now you hear the backstory, it ticks on, it's like, oh, so sweet. Talking about UFOs and, 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 oh, look, she left me roses. <laughs> the next track and the reason, I, the reason I'm not going too deep into all the small things because we've all we all know that song. We've heard it so many times before, and it's not really, yeah, much depth to it other than it was written as a pop song, and it had some Ramones influence to it. And the music video was absolutely hilarious. Oh, definitely love that music video. They're kind of a kind of a jab at the boy bands. Yes, jab at everything. Um, I think that inspired a lot of the bands that came afterwards. Music videos too, like uh, Bowling for Soup, uh, the girl all the bad guys want, where they just ripped apart every music video that was done by any new metal slash depressed rock band ever. I think the the main target was outside by, was it Stained? The bald dude who hung around with Fred Durst. Um, <laughs> that's the only thing I remember. Oh, yeah, Aaron Lewis. Aaron Lewis. Yeah, yeah. I almost said Aaron who's, Stevens. <laughs> who's, a, who's a country artist now. 
Really? Yeah. I'm on the outside. Okay. <laughs> uh, we moved to the party song, which was written by Mark Harpus after leaving what he described as a jock-infested party at San Diego University. With no student, way. With students thinking so much of themselves. Oh, yeah. Now, full disclosure, I was part of the... the, the um, I played football. And I listened to music, so I wasn't part of any of these, like, jock-infested nerd parties that were thrown at my school. And the guys, actually, I was in the band with, they told me that they, they, they a school, they did all that stuff, which, now I wish I went to that school instead, some part of me did. But, um, it's a description of every high school party. I mean, that that's easily fair to say. If you are unfamiliar with what a high school party looks like, pull up any American teen movie and watch the high school party scenes, and then divide it by about 20. Because <laughs> really not that many people show up to them. Yeah, nobody dances at parties either. No, they just sit there with their drink in one hand, trying to figure out how to diminish the force field of the friend zone. Uh, right. <laughs> um, but this actually did have a statement made to it. Um, it was trying to say that jocks are... These loudmouth, boorish, sexually driven idiots. But it was also made the statement that, you know what? The girls are as well. It's that age, man. It's it's the age. Yeah. My daughter's that age. Oh god. Uh <laughs> but I mean it, it it was again, it was a social statement, but nobody kind of picked up on it because they just thought it was childish stuff. I mean, you know, this, this is the only way to describe it. Um, but again, a really, really good song. One of the standout tracks of the album. Um, definitely, definitely. It, it After Adam's song, it picked up the pace nicely where you had the, the down, then you had the pop song, and then back up to, you know, you know, as as, as, as the drumming style. Um, my favorite song on the album is next, Mutt. Uh, written by Tom DeLong. In my opinion, this is the soundtrack song. Because it was on like three or four different movies. I'm trying to remember. I'm, for some reason, that one's not ringing a bell. Uh, is that life just sucks? No. I lost okay. She's open, waiting for more. No, no, he's okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, it was on the American Pie soundtrack with the webcam scene. Hmm. And in fact, that, that's where they made a ca- they made a cameo in the movie too. Right during that exact of, time. Uh, yeah. Uh, I love this song. I think the drum beat at the very beginning, again, showed. Travis Barker's, you know... Prowess. Yes. And it was more... I don't say bass heavy, but it was guitar light in certain areas. Yeah, the uh, guitar drops out, and uh, it's basically just bass and drums for the uh, for the verses, which does a lot for the dynamics of the song when it picks back up in the chorus. And then, like, I don't want to say it's a drum solo, but the musical break is definitely drum heavy. As opposed to any again, that that's I've I've never heard that in a band before, of of like the musical break being drum heavy with a little bit of guitar and bass, as opposed to being a guitar solo or just a big musical interlude or even you right. know, and but um yeah now ironically, um this is one of the few songs that was uh, recorded with Scott Rayner on the drums, uh originally, there's a movie called The Show that has an early version of this song with Scott Rayner behind the drum kit. So if I've I've never heard it, but I now I'm interested to listen to it because again, Scott Rayner was not was not a bad drummer, but he certainly was not as good as uh, Travis Barker was. And you know what's interesting? You mentioned Green Day earlier. 
both Green Day and Blink-182 were propelled by getting a phenomenal replacement drummer. Yes. Because if you listen to Green Day's first two albums, they had, uh, I can't remember his last name, is John D. I think it's like Dup, Duppenmeyer or something like that. He did, did a fantastic job, but once again, Trey Cool. Oh, yeah. Trey Cool might be Travis Barker's only competition in that genre. I'd say that. I'd he say that. he might be. I mean, they both have similar backgrounds, similar taste in music. Well, that leads to the question. A lot of bands, like, have replaced their drummer and have gone on to, after they've replaced them. So the key is, kids, if you're in a band and you're doing okay, sack your drummer for a better one, and then you're good. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> if you're putting together a band, I'll tell you this from first-hand experience. If you're putting together a band, you're only as good as your drummer and your bassist. Yes. That I mean, I cannot stress that enough. You get a good drummer, you're 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 set. Definitely. I mean, look at Nirvana. Also, another band propelled by drummer change. Uh, yeah, they they actually had eight different drummers. Wow. Before they settled on Dave Grohl. That's a heck of a saddle, though. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> their their original drummer was this guy uh, Chad Channing. They had um, uh, uh, Dale Crover from the Melvins, uh, Aaron Burkhart from, uh, I can't remember who, but they've, they've had around five to eight different drummers, something like that. Only, so. one, only one band I know that's worked in the inverse, and that's The Who. Yeah. But then again, you know, you replace Keith Moon with anybody, it's going to be a very, very difficult replacement. Oh, yeah, that band was over as soon as he died. Oh, yeah. But uh, uh, Zach Stark, he's come in and he does really, really well. Sure. I mean, you know... Ringo Starr sudden got trained by Uncle Keith. So, and the good thing about Zach Starkey is he can do traditional and the wild Keith Moon style. So we have two more tracks to go. One of them is called Wendy Clear. Um, the song is named after a boat called Wendy and the word clear. So this is Wendy Clear. I mean, that's... Huh. Um, it's about having a crush on someone that you're not supposed to have. So I don't know if it means you have a crush on somebody forbidden or you have a crush on somebody that people would absolutely... Or that's out of your league. That's out of your league or even you think is out of your league. The drums and the bass in this song, the the, the composition of this song, uh, the drums in between the second and third verse has a kind of deliberate sound to make the chorus seem bigger than what it was. Good song. Again, kind of like the aliens exist, not very deep. And again, throwaway is probably the, not, not the correct word, but it's it's the it's the the, the closest word I can think Filler. of. Filler. Filler. Yes. Yeah. Just kind of, we need a track for for track eleven. Well, here's one we wrote earlier. Oh, okay. Well, here we go. And then finally, we have anthem, which was written by Tom DeLonge. Uh, it's talking about leaving the suburbs and feeling trapped at the age of twenty-one. And speaking as a guy who's never lived in the suburbs, I don't get it. For me, you know, for me, where you live is where you live. Your home is your house is your house. Your home is your home. Whatever doesn't matter where it is. But um, it's also based on what happened when he was at a party, and he was playing at a party, and it was raided by the cops. And it's the perfect sum up of the whole album. It kind of encompasses everything that they've spoken about. It, it wraps everything up in a neat little bow, for lack of a better term. You know, it features pretty much all of the themes that were talked about in the other tracks, and. The styles of all the other tracks, you know, it kind of like is a, is a melting pot, but it was made in a way where it seems unique. 
and it's 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 a good song. It's it's a loud song. I mean, it's called Anthem, obviously, and it was written about a party. But um, it's a good song, and it deserves its place on on the album at least, anyway. Um, this album would have sucked without Travis Parker. Can definitely. I just say that? It might maybe okay, maybe it wouldn't have sucked, but it would not have been the same album without no, Travis Parker. Not even close. Not even close. Again, tra- th- this yeah, Travis Parker is one of a kind. Absolutely, in terms of his drumming style, um, and that, I mean that's part of the legacy too. I mean Travis Barker just announced announced to the world, "Here I am," and bang, I'm 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 here, and you can't you can't get me away. And he proved that in many many different styles and so on and so forth. Uh, Jerry Finn uh, went on to actually become Blink 182's producer and produced a couple more albums by them and a whole host of others from the genre. He was kind of like the go-to guy for the pop punk for a slick pop punk sounding album, yeah. yeah. Before his untimely death in 2008. Um, this album did kick off the pop-punk explosion that started... Again, like I mentioned with Brook Pop a couple of weeks ago, it had already started, but this was like the, the, the match that, that this lit everything up. cemented it, basically. Yeah. I mean, then you had the stuff like The Offspring had already started this, and Green Day had already started this, but Blink-182 kind of was the day. They ushered in a lot of other bands that may have not have gotten the same attention because of, because of their success. Some 41. Yeah. Good show. Uh, Newfound Glory, uh, Jimmy Eat World, you know, so on and so forth. Good Charlotte, man. I'm sorry. So, so, somebody introduced me to Good Charlotte, and I've never wanted to hate somebody more in my life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, you know, it's interesting about them. Um, I don't know if we have any um, a Perfect Circle fans listening right now, but um, Josh Freeze, who was uh, Perfect Circle's original drummer, did all the drum tracks for Good Charlotte's debut album. Wow. Yeah, I, I heard that he doesn't like to talk about that now. <laughs> to be fair, I wouldn't either. But hey, if you're if you're a studio drummer, that's how you make your money, playing oh, yeah. drums. So, I mean, at, when I've been plucked for studio work or live work, I mean, if they're paying me, it can be country, blues. I mean, it's what I do. I play bass, so. This album also um, inspired the revival of Green Day. Because in 2001, Green Day were a mess. That Warning album. Yeah. Is that called Warning or Waiting? I can't remember which. which no, it was Warning. Was warning. It was Warning. It was such a... It was so trite. It was like it had already been done. They would just play into play, and then they went away and wrote, wrote American Idiot. Well, it's like there was Dookie, and then there was Dookie Part 2, and then there was Dookie Part 3, and then Dookie Part 4. And they just... It, just, it's, it, it was yeah. samey. It was, it was exactly the same. And then, bang, American Idiot came out a couple of years later. And they credit this album for kind of keeping them together and saying, look, we can have deep meanings in our songs and still have fun. That, in, yeah, and they kind of started taking stances at that point. Because yeah. before, it was just like... Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm neurotic and I'm stoned and I'm blah, 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 blah. And he, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But now it's like, you know, he's, they have these like really specific political stance and all these other things, you know. It matured. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're like 50 years old now. I hope it matured. Them. <laughs> well, then again, Johnny Rotten hasn't matured. So, yeah. You know, uh, in my opinion, this is. Now, people who know me know that this isn't my cup of tea musically, so to speak. It's not my traditional cup of tea musically. But I, I know I know a good sounding album, and I know a good album when, when I hear one. And I think this is a, a solid 7 out of 10. Uh, nothing too controversial in terms of the, the, the type of music that they were trying to make. But definitely, you know, definitely a solid album, definitely a good album. Oh, great album. Yeah, those, it was the anthem of, of basically my late teens. 
and that's that's you know that's what I've got here. You know, it just it it was a teenage young adult Bible, like perspective and yeah. sort of yeah guidebook, and yeah, I mean, uh, and I, I I guess you could say I was among the target demographic at that age, about 16, 17. Yeah, just, just it, it's like we know what you're going through. You know, this is what you're going through. Isn't 16 it? just had had such better days. Yep. Um, but it can be childish. It can be spiteful. But equally as thoughtful. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, there's, there's parts in there where it's making commentary, social commentary, and... At the same time, it's doing it with, for lack of a better term, a bunch of dick and fart jokes, you know. Right. But and and that's the point I, we were try, I was trying to make earlier. The album itself, in terms of themes and messages, is very, very introspective, very, very thoughtful, very, very makes you think. With the guise of being just another throwaway, vulgar, childish. It's 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 not that just for the sake of being that. Yes. It's 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 doing that to. It's like hill, uh, hills and valleys. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, I mean, it's definitely, you could, at its surface, you could write it off for being, you know, just a bunch of immature 20-something-year-olds writing about d- and fart jokes. You could, you could make that argument, but I, I think it's deeper than that because what you have is you have the, uh, the experience of someone who's been through that looking back on that sort of thing and commenting on it. I mean, that sort of thing is valuable to people that age who are going through those same things because you don't know how to approach this stuff and how to they, what you're going to feel and, you know, to have someone that's been through it that can kind of eloquently weave it in to a relatable sort of thing is, I mean, that's huge. I mean, and I mean, people our age and, and older, we, you know, we think of teenagers being wet behind the ears and they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're talking. But then again, they still have the real emotions. And in fact, at that age, they're more intense than emotions that we get as mid mid to late 30s. I would say I'm 35 and I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so that, 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 that never changes. I mean, so I think, I think the best thing that if we have any younger listeners that are listening right now, the best thing we can learn from that is just to enjoy where you're at enjoy life um you know it's it's going to present new challenges every day you, there's going to be times when you're sublimely happy when you're going to be very sad and you just have to take it take it with a grain of salt and just learn from your mistakes and just try to be a better person every day it's all you can do uh travis Barker's debut recording as himself and changed the sound overall and showed in again as i mentioned earlier i think he's the best active living drummer right now you could you could make that argument. I mean, it's hard to quantify styles, yeah. but tick tick for tick, like if you put Travis Barker up against, say, like Mike Mangini, Akira Himbo, Max Weinberg, I mean, I could probably name about ten other drummers. Um, but the point being, if you sat him down like with some sticks and just a snare drum, I mean, it would be it, it, there would definitely be a dogfight. It's it's it, he's in the he's uh, he's at least in the in the in the high stages of the conversation at least. Yeah, I think it comes down to preference at the end of the day. Yeah. But I mean, he is he is referred to as one of the cleanest drummers. And if if you're not familiar with that term, it basically just means how well you articulate each note. Yeah. And the spacing between each note, because that's the thing. The drumming is it's it's about the notes you hit, but it's equally about the notes you don't hit. 
Um, even though it sounds like really, really 90s, and we know it's really, really 90s, it kind of dates itself with some of the references it makes. Absolutely. Like, I wrote you letters. I mean, sadly, that's one of the lost arts, especially in long-distance relationships. Yep. You know, it's now, I'll send you a text message. Or let's FaceTime later, or Look, I sent webcam. you a snap of me looking like a puppy. Yeah. God, I'm burning my mouth. You do realize some, some, some teenager's going to go missing. And it's that's that's going to be horrible. Some teenagers are going to go missing, and the picture that they use on the news or the milk carton to describe they have the huge eyes and the the dog the, ears, dog ears, and, yeah. and all kind of. Ugh. Oh my word! Um, it argues that while female teenagers are generally smarter and more mature than their male counterparts, that, and that's by design. But yeah, yep, uh, they're just as nasty as the guys. Absolutely, in every way. Yep. That's equality for you folks. So uh, that's nature versus nurture, but I mean, women mature faster than men, so... And they know it, too. But they're still teenagers, so... Still wet behind the ears a little bit. There you go. Um, The production value of Jerry Finn made the album sound kind of sterile and clean, but that was the point. I think it was produced perfectly. I mean, it it was a little little sterile, and that might have... I don't know if that's production style or um, his console of choice, but it, it did have some warmth to it. Yeah. It, it wasn't too sterile. Um, I would actually say of Finn's albums, Dookie is probably the most sterile album I've oh, heard definitely. him do. But it's still a great album. It's one of my top ten favorites of all time. It's it's a little too clean. It's clean, but it's a little too clean. Almost, yeah. Especially if you go back and listen to Kerplonk or 1039 Smooth Out Slappy Hours. Yeah, total, totally different sound. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is probably the most 90s album out there in the whole thing of 90s albums because most people you could argue that yeah. most people think of the 90s they very rarely talk about the early 90s they're usually talking about between 95 to 99 you know and now with this obviously I've touched on things before that and you know we will in future but I mean this is definitely the most you know if you looked up 90s album in the dictionary here's Blink-182 with the porn star on, on, on the cover of the album yeah we didn't, <laughs> we didn't even talk about that no we didn't but uh she actually uh, dressed up back in the uniform for a photo shoot a couple of months ago with uh, with a couple of the guys. It's been what, like almost twenty years. Almost twenty years. Jeez. Yeah. That, that's the weird part about it. This song was this album was released twenty years ago, nearly. You know, uh, actually, I saw Blink One Eighty Two back in ninety eight, ninety nine with the original, the classic lineup, and I actually saw them last year when they played in Dallas with their uh, new guitar player. And man, they them old dudes still put on one hell of a show. I mean, oh, and the other the other great thing, um, their uh, new guitar players from Alkaline Trio, Matt Skiba. I, I wasn't so sure about him, but after listening to California and seeing them live, great guy. At one point of the show, Travis Barker and Matt Skiba switched places. Really? Yeah, Matt Skiba went and played the drums. Travis, Travis, they all wait. They all switched. Okay. Travis Barker played bass. bass. Um, Mark went to guitar and then Skiba went to drums and they played like two or three songs like that it was just so funny though because Travis was up there it was like like he was <laughs> doing it but like the way he was holding the bass he was just like what is this thing like how do I the yeah. first time I saw Dave Grohl play because I I knew of Nirvana but I didn't know what any of them looked like right right and I knew of the Foo Fighters and I saw Dave Grohl, so like I'm seeing him play guitar, and then I see him behind the drum kit. And I'm like, whoa, that looks. Weird. And then it was the first time I saw Phil Collins behind the drum kit. That looked weird too, yeah. you know. Um, it is weird watching uh, guys you establish you you establish mentally with one instrument play another instrument. Yeah, uh, like in the unplugged. I know we're going on a tangent here, but the um, the unplugged Nirvana, uh, Chris Novoselic breaks out an accordion. Yes. Uh, also, Kirk Cobain started off as a drummer. 
I did not know that. Just think about how different the the musical landscape would have been if Kirk Cobain had never played guitar. Kirk Cobain leaves guitar, leaves Nirvana under an apparent suicide, and then rocks up on the second Foo Fighters album because Taylor does look does have a little 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 Kurt look to him. He kind of does, but I mean, <laughs> he's basically Dave Grohl part two. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, his drumming is so derived from Dave. Also, an uh, interesting fact about him, he actually played on Alanis Morissette's debut album. Really? Taylor Hawkins, yes. Uh, it, it was him, uh, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Dave Navarre from Jane's Addiction. That was her rhythm section for that album. Jane's Addiction or Red Hot Chili Peppers? Well, well at the time, he was in Jane's Addiction's. Um, I think he was transitioning into the Peppers, but yeah, you get my point. I think th- I, I don't think he was a good seat for the Peppers myself, Dave Navarro. Yeah, I mean, for one hot minute, I think he worked really well. But if you look at everything past that, I mean, I don't know what happened. I know Frusciani, the original guitar player, had problems with drugs and stuff like that. But those first couple albums with him on guitar, man, gold. The, the problem is, though, if you, if you combined all of Nirvana's former drummers and all of the Red Hot Chili Peppers' former guitarists... There's like 8 million different combinations you can have between them. Yep. Greg, man, it's been awesome having you on. Uh, you know, the invitation, again, is always open. Uh, we've got some good stuff coming up next season because we're obviously nearing the end of this season. But um, social media question for this week. It is about our featured album, Animal of the State. Was it a childish album or did it have some substance to it? I think it had a lot of substance to it myself. Yes. And so... My answer is yes. Answer is yes. Uh, let us know on social media websites. I'll post this here in a little bit. And again, it's really great to have you on. And Thanks for having me. No problem. It. Nirvana were the biggest band in the world in 1993. MTV was the biggest music network in the world. And the Unplugged series was one of the flagship shows. Rock acts playing hard rock songs on acoustic instruments. The fit was natural. Then the argument started. MTV executives wanted a greatest hits type of set. And guests with high name value like Eddie Better. Nirvana wanted a more intimate set, playing few hits. And guests like the Meat Puppets. Nirvana won the day. The band played a phenomenal 14 track set. Hitting highs with a Bowie cover. A moment with Kurt Cobain all by himself. An accordion. And a sigh. During the final song, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Kurt sighed. The camera caught the moment. With Kurt's untimely death several months later, that sigh took on a different meaning. Some say that it was the moment we subconsciously knew that Kurt was close to the end of the line. The show is now considered a masterpiece. A template to what an unplugged show could do. And a fitting end to a great band. Sincerest thank yous to Greg Gregory for uh, helping me out this season, and you know that's the last time we're going to hear from Greg for a little while. But I want to thank him profusely. Um, I couldn't have done a lot of these episodes without him. He has been uh, very, very helpful and very, very instrumental in getting us up and running and, get, and getting us going. Uh, as I mentioned the beginning of the season and in that in the episode itself, uh, Greg is a member of the Holodex. You can check them out at theholodex.com. That's H-O-L-L-O-W for hollow. Uh, so theholodex.com. Or check them out on Facebook at the Holodex. Uh, again, if you guys are a fan of 90s music, um, these guys are absolutely brilliant. Uh, they recently won Aquatex Music Award Rock Band of the Year in 2017. And, yeah, I mean, you know, these guys are really, really good. And, you know, good guys, too. Good guys. Um, so that's almost it for this week. Uh, again, I'm going to repeat the social media question for you. 
was Animal of the State a childish album, or did it have some subtle meaning behind it? I personally think it had a lot of subtle meaning, but yeah, it was childish. It was childish in its presentation. But, uh, you know, I'm going to post this on uh, social media sites, on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Go ahead and, and cast your vote. Let us know. Give us your opinion on it. If anything that you have an opinion on the show, I mean, you know, again, reach out to us, social media sites. I will read and reply everything that is put on social media, you know, because I don't have a show without you guys. So that's just how it is. Next week's show is our final episode of the year. Uh, this is our season finale. Um, yeah, kind of a bittersweet moment, I guess. Um, but um, again, like I mentioned earlier, we've got so much coming up with the holidays. It just gives me time to relax and, you know, restock the shelves and so on and so forth. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's we are going to be gone for a couple of weeks, but we do have some content that's coming up uh, in the break that we've already pre-recorded, is already in the can and so on and so forth. So, you know, we won't be completely dormant. And plus, you know, we'll still be on social media sites and so on and so forth. But next week, we will be reviewing Pulp Fiction, perhaps the greatest movie ever made. I'm sorry for anybody who's, who's talked about The Godfather. I think Pulp Fiction is fantastic. We're going to go in and look at everything behind it, the stories behind it, the acting behind it, the direction behind it, uh, just everything you can think of in a good movie review, plus the fact that, you know, it's Tarantino's masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. I know recently Tarantino's come under a little bit of criticism from how he handled certain things in the, uh, the sex scandal that's going around, but... Um, you know, that's that that's a hard thing to reconcile, I think. But at the same time, this movie is fantastic. It's, you know, Tarantino's actions, whatever they are or aren't, should not take away from the fact that Samuel L. Jackson, John Travolta, Bruce Willis, Uma Thurman, and everybody else had such phenomenal, phenomenal performances. You know, you can't take that away from them. Um, I'll go into a debate about that at another time. But I will be joined by Molly Watson. Molly is an avid fiction fan. She loves books. She loves movies. She's bright. She's bubbly. She's awesome. Um, I think, you know, you guys are going to like her. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get this discussion going on. And again, like I mentioned, Greg, Sarah, uh, and Molly is, is one of the people who helped me basically get this up and running. And I wouldn't be where I am right now with this podcast with, without the help of, of, of those three. So that's it for this week, guys. If you like what you hear, give us a like on social media. Uh, give us a like on Podbean and iTunes. Give us a review, too. We are looking to grow our audience. And I will see you guys next week. Music.